it's Thursday, April the 13th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio, Tom Henriksen, Hoover's Senior Fellow Emeritus and author of multiple books on U.S. military and diplomatic approaches to the non-Western world and rogue regimes, one of which is a topic of today's conversation, the rogue regime that is North Korea. Tom, good to see you. Thank you. So here we are. Here we are sitting in California on Thursday afternoon, and like the rest of the world, we're wondering what is going to happen when in North Korea. And we were just talking before we came on the air about today's big news, which is the dropping of a Moab, a very large bomb in Afghanistan. And your theory is that although that was dropped in Afghanistan, you think the actual target is elsewhere. Yes, I think the administration uh, is facing a difficult situation in uh, Afghanistan, uh, clearly, uh, with Taliban being in rocks and uh, in caves and so on, just as they were when we invaded. But I do think by dropping the Moab, this uh, massive ordnance uh, air bomb weapon or air blast weapon, uh, sends a signal elsewhere, because if it's designed for tunnels, uh, it can also be used for tunnels in North Korea as well. And as we know, North Korea has many of its weapons, both uh, atomic or nuclear, uh, and some, many of its conventional weapons hidden in tunnels or also protected by tunnels. And so uh, it could send a, a strong signal mm -hmm. that uh, the United States can come after you uh, with a conventional arm, a very explosive conventional arm, and not go nuclear and yet do a lot of harm uh, to the North Koreans. Now, is your sense that the North Koreans will actually respond to a message of force? We've been trying di diplomacy with this country for 20-plus years, two decades. Several administrations have all tried the diplomatic channels. Do you think force will actually be a more effective way to get their attention? I think it will get their attention. They they can't buckle, and their their supreme leader, in this case Kim Jong Un, like his father and grandfather, pride themselves on having uh, a very stoic, a very steely exterior. Uh, but they won't be intimidated. That's part of a culture. It's a kind of super macho culture that is a, that is very typical to North Korean military. Very boastful, uh, and we've known about this since the Korean War. Uh, so that it will not show on the surface, certainly. They're not going to sweat or look scared, uh, and anything, they may double down a bit. But I'm sure it has their attention. Right. Now, Saturday, Tom, is April the 15th, and I plan to spend the day morning having to pay federal taxes. In the Henderson household, do you celebrate the Day of the Sun? Ah, the Day of the Sun. Hey, well, yes, this why, is, why don't you explain what the Day of the Sun is? Well, this is the Day of the Sun is, of course, in honor of the founder of a country, Kim Il-sung, uh, who uh, fought against the Japanese uh, in Manchuria and was partially rewarded for this uh, to, to get the, the top position in Korea, North Korea, as it was, it was a sphere of influence at that time. Uh, and the South fell within the American sphere or the Allied sphere. And so, so there is this adoration, uh, which it's, it's a cult of personality uh, that even surpasses that, I think, of a Stalin cult of a personality for the leaders of the country. It's, it's of course, fabricated uh, by the government, but it, is a, it, it does exercise a certain elementary uh, force to bring the country together uh, unify them in the, in the face of threats. So it's very useful to them to have these kind of Day of the Sun or Remembrance Days uh, for various feats that have happened in Korean history. 
do you think they will do something noisy like fire a rocket or set off a nuke? It's very likely they could, in fact, fire a rocket, which not just for the Day of Sun, but also to tell the Americans who, as you know, ha we have a naval fleet steaming toward uh, the Korean coast, to just tell them they're not going to be intimidated and they will strike back if the United States should make uh, a strike on, on their uh, uh, nuclear facilities or even their conventional facilities. Mm -hmm. um, so at issue here is not... Um Kim Sung-il, at issue here is Kim Jong-un, his grandson. Um, the elder Kim, by the way, born on April 15th, 1912, which coincides with the sinking of the Titanic. How's that for a historic parallel? Uh, but Kim Jong-un, he's 33 years old. That means, Tom, he is four months young, older than Mark Zuckerberg. And he is in charge of his rogue regime. You study this man, you study this country. Give us just in a brief capsule, who is this person? Well, he has, he is, as you know, uh, a part of a lineage uh, of dynasty, but uh, is, is almost Plantagenet in its kind of sinisterness. It's like something like Richard III, and we eliminates uh, his, his very, uh, his, even his uncle has been killed by him. So he, he's very, very, uh, he's paranoid to a degree, but he's not stupid. He's not He's not a stupid man or overly emotional. They do calculate power in inches and pounds. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he is calculating, but he has to survive his internal critics. And part of this sort of super macho uh, persona is showing that he's in charge, that he, he's not going to waver, uh, and that his critics internally, and are some, uh, we don't know who they are, but we know because they're eliminated from time to time, uh, he has to show a very steely outside, a very sternness and toughness. He can't buckle. And so he, that, that is part of persona. But as far as his youth, yes, I think that's a concern for him. Uh, he's a concern, but older elements, perhaps generals in their 60s or seven, uh, 70s, might try to overthrow him. So he's, he has to be careful of his, his rear flank as well as with the United States. So he has his role carved out for him. It's been carved out. It's the same kind of uh, position his, his father and grandfather have found themselves in from time to time. Um, let me ask a decidedly non-academic question. Is he playing with a full deck? There are two ways to look at this. Either he is somewhat unhinged because he has grandeurs of nuclear glory and striking blow against the United States of America, or he is a young, immature, deeply paranoid man. What's, what's your sense of it? I think he's young and deeply paranoid. Uh, I, I, I don't, I've never seen the North Korean leadership uh, um, so-called certifiably insane. I, I think they will do things that are very, very scary to the rest of us, and they don't make sense from the Western American mind how we look at view problems. We think of making deals, uh, taking the best option possible, uh, they don't see it that way. They see he has to preserve himself, as I said earlier. He has internal critics. Part of it, uh, his uh, actions are to rally his people around him against the Americans. And we are a very easy uh, enemy to caricature because we always be perceived as dropping bombs on people or trying to have regime change. And so it's not just him that would lose out, but his coterie would also. So he does have backers, very powerful people in the country who don't want to see him out because they would be out too. I mean, right. it, is, it is a dynastic formation with hangers-on and courtier, uh, courtiers and, and people who are dependent on him 
for their, their standing in life, too. Mm-hmm. I want you to chart a path for us to get out of this crisis and to figure out how to solve what to do with uh, North Korea. But first, Tom, let's talk about what led us to this point. And let's go back to 2009. And Barack Obama comes to office, and he delivers an inaugural address, and he famously says that he would offer an outstretched hand to any nation willing to unclench their fist, i.e., a North Korea. Within the first 18 weeks of Obama being in office, what happens? North Korea fires a rocket, and they set off a nuclear weapon, which is not an unclenched fist. That's a middle finger being extended. Enter Hillary Clinton as the Secretary of State, and what does she say? Quote, strategic patience and close consultations with our six party allies. Tom, what does that mean, six-party allies? Well, we had six-party talks beginning uh, with the George W. administration. Before that, American had normally worked one-on-one with the North Koreans. That is to say, the United States dealt with them for various agreements. Now, we would consult the South Koreans. We would consult the Japanese and the Chinese. But they weren't a formal part of our negotiations. So six parties, North Korea, the United States, China... Japan, Russia, and South Korea? South Korea. That's correct. You got it. Those are the six countries. They're neighboring countries. They have the most at stake if there happened to be a a, a nuclear war or a conventional war. And the the North Korean, we began those uh, six-party talks. This was an idea, a way of broadening, including China. and, and to a degree, the Obama administration carried that on, but it really never formalized and held those kind of broad six-party talks, which the Bush administration did. Uh, strategic patience, and sometimes was akin to almost a Sitzkrieg war. I mean, we think of Sitzkrieg being back when there was no war, no fighting, the period after Germany invaded Poland until the war against France took place in May of 1940. Uh, There was nothing happening. And in a way, this strategic patience was a way of saying, we're not going to really deal with you. You're going to wait till you grow up. That was their characterization, the characterization of Hillary Clinton, that it was a child regime, that it simply reacted to things, was too emotional, and we would wait for them to grow up, and therefore we would not engage. And also there was a kind of frustration and fatigue on the American point of view because the North Koreans would enter agreements and break them. And it's happened repeatedly, not just with governments, but also with companies that tried to uh, broker deals uh, for the vast resources that North Korea does have. And so what, what, what happened here is the strategic patience, and it's, in a way it was kind of putting everything on hold. Uh, it was a way of not doing it, and it fit in a piece with uh, President Obama's disengagement idea. We're not going to engage too much. We're not going to have a forward policy in places like Libya or Syria or elsewhere. And so this is a way of saying we don't not, we're not going to do anything, and yet we're going to take credit for having a policy. So we didn't do anything, and the result were more nuclear blasts. Okay, so we look now at the situation. Let's look at those six parties, Tom. The United States. Donald Trump has done what? We've dropped a Moab today, and as you mentioned, there's a carrier strike group on its way to, to park itself off the Korean Peninsula, and who knows what happens there. Let's look at the other parties in the six uh, in the uh, six parties. Let's let's discuss their various positions right now. Let's start with South Korea. What is going on in the mind of the South Korean government right now? Well, South Koreans are very nervous. Uh, they have had uh, their their um, they're in disarray politically because their their. Uh, President uh, Park uh, has been thrown out for, for uh, 
corruption, and they're going to hold elections uh, next month uh, to replace her. And uh, the, the leading candidates are very, very fearful that uh, the United States will get them into a war. Uh, the stationing of uh, a missile defense system in South Korea. So they're, they're nervous, they're apprehensive. Uh, the Japanese are, but for different, a little bit different reason. The Japanese do not want to be struck by a, uh, a missile. They're not so worried about being invaded from the north as are the South Koreans. South Koreans are very wary of being subjected to a barrage of, of um, conventional type rockets, right. uh, rocket launchers. Sure something coming over the yellow sea Yeah, coming right across the demilitarized zone. Mm -hmm. Lots and lots of artillery shells, which kill a lot of people in Seoul, which is just, you know, 30 miles south of the, of the uh, demilitarized zone. And so those two countries are very wary. Uh, in the case of China, China is, I think, uh, the arch foe and, and bears a huge responsibility for North Korea's attitude because it, North Korea could not uh, survive without the fuel, the food, uh, the diplomatic support that North Korea has been given by the North. The, 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 the um, Beijing has uh, coddled them in a certain respect, has held back on them. Beijing will often go along with the United States in some of the sanctions, not all, some of the sanctions that are passed in the Security Council of the United Nations. And then it will not enforce the sanctions. There's lots of cases where the North Koreans are still getting goods, still trading with uh, China. China bears a lot of responsibility for what's happened, and, and there are several reasons for that. One, they're both fraternal communist parties, after all. Uh, two, uh, China does not want to see a, a, a sort of free, independent, democracy, entrepreneurial government uh, in, across its border, something like a Hong Kong. It doesn't right. tolerate Hong Kong at, at, at all, hardly at all. It wants to, in fact, suppress freedoms in Hong Kong. It doesn't want this, a, a vibrant eco economy, capitalist system south of its border. It's fearful of that. It's also somewhat fearful of refugees streaming north uh, into uh, China, though I think that's overplayed by most analysts because I think many of those refugees fleeing North Korea, if there's a problem, uh, either a military uh, a war or a collapse in the government, many of them will go south. After all, that's where their relatives are. That's the language they speak. They speak Korean. Uh, and so I think that's overplayed. But nonetheless, I think China. Russia's role is more shadowy lately. Uh, Russia does share barrel borders, just a little more than 100 miles of North Korea. And the board, the, the, the um, Russians have been responsible for giving the North Koreans the nuclear know-how uh, in the 1960s, they were besieged. They provided a small nuclear reactor for uh, sort of an experimental reactor. They trained many of the North Korean engineers, and they, in fact, provided also Scud missile technology, which was fairly advanced. And the North Koreans, of course, have worked on it, perfected it. They also trained many of the engineers, uh, that is to say, Russians trained many of the engineers uh, in South Korea, many of the scientists, or North Korea, many of the scientists. Uh, but after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, Russia was no longer the chief patron. It had been the chief patron of North Korea, uh, but now that, that uh, honor, uh, so to speak, has been passed to the Chinese. The Chinese are the chief supporters, uh, backers of North Korea. If 
Donald Trump went to the other uh, parties, not North Korea, obviously, but the other parties in the six-party group, and asked for a head count on whether or not we should go in and decapitate this regime, what would the vote be? Uh, he'd lose. <laughs> would anybody would anybody would even South Korea vote for that? No, I don't. I think I think all of the options that one can think about an airstrike, uh, 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 some sort of small nuclear attack, uh, a decapitation of some form, either by assassination, by our military strike, uh, a almost anything you can think of can end badly. And everybody knows that. There's a lot of reasons to maintain the status quo on that peninsula. And that's been the problem for the last several decades. It's not a very good situation. But it could be a lot worse. If that, this goes back to the wars of the late 19th century, early 20th century, when China, China, Japan, Russia all kind of converged on uh, what was happening in Korea. Korea was then considered a, a dagger pointed at Japan. And Japan intervened, in the, intervened there uh, and held that country uh, from the early 20th century until it lost the war in 1945. To Japan lost the war in 1945. And so they look back on that. This was not a happy period. And so it's a little bit like Poland uh, of, of the, uh, the, the, the 21st century. Poland, as you know, is, was besieged in the, in the 18th century by the Russians and Germans and the Austrians and the Prussians. And it was a crossroads. And the same is somewhat true of Korea. It, it enjoys geographically one of the flashpoints and one of the few points in a world where all the great powers converge and share a, either a common border or very close to it, even the United States, because we're in South Korea with 28,000 troops. So it is one of those very difficult uh, crossroads in history where geographically, historically, things come together in a way that make all powers apprehensive. This could get very, very nasty. A lot of people could get killed, and you'd be left with a mess afterwards. How to rebuild this very backward state of North Korea? So if you've been reading the internet the last couple of days, Tom, uh, it's just a wash with stories about military options and, and the Korean Peninsula and who has what. And the North Korean capacity is fascinating to read about. It's in part James Bond. You don't know what's fact and what's fiction. You hear all sorts of things. You hear nuclear weapons hidden in tunnels. You hear about uh, sarin and tipped missiles that could be fired at Japan, uh, submarines off the coast, all sorts of things they can do. Uh, give me your assessment of the North Korean military, but also give me your assessment of our military watch on North Korea. Are you confident in that we know exactly what the North Koreans have and we know where they have it? Well, to answer your last question first, uh, no, we're not always confident. We do know some things because of satellites that have helped a great deal. And so we, we know where many of the things are or about they are. Uh, we don't know that they're, they've also built a lot of bunkers underground. They're very, very good at this. They're world famous for bunkers. Uh, they've lent their personnel even to Hamas. Uh, to build tun tun tunnels uh, in Gaza. Uh, they did it the same thing when, um, uh, when Serbia was, uh, was around and causing uh, a lot of troubles. They, they provided people who could know how to build bunkers. They're very good at this. They're, they're past masters at tunnels and bunkers. So they have that. We don't really know where everything is. They have an army that it's hard to get a fix on. It's large. Sometimes it's ranked fourth or fifth in the world in terms of raw numbers. Uh, our sense is that their aircraft are way, way dated. They don't have enough fuel to practice regularly. 
the state of the Army uh, is such that it may not be as good as they think it is, but it could, if it invades, it could cause a lot of damage and kill a lot of people. I have no doubt that eventually the United States and the South Koreans, who are very good, who have a 600-man uh, army, which is 600,000-man army, which is very, very large and very, very good and well-trained, would ultimately prevail. But the devastation would be huge. Well, it would Seoul, be on, on an order far, How far is Seoul from the border? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Seoul is just a matter of miles from the border. It would be a devastation something akin to World War II Berlin. I mean, things would just be blown apart, and it would take a lot to restore. We would win. The United States would prevail, but it, it would be a pyrrhic victory. Right. Uh, and we'd have this horrible problem of what to do afterward. Right. Now, if we use the Syria example, Tom, it's a very neat strike in that we fire 59 cruise missiles, and they're pointed at an airstrip, an airfield, an airbase from which the chemical attack was launched. What, would your, what is your hunch as to what a military strike at North Korea would look like? What, what sort of ordinance do you think we would unleash? Would we send planes? Would we just fire missiles? And what would we target? That's a good question. The problem is there are several targets, mm-hmm. uh, and we know that. And they have different, they've had different launching plans for different missiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we do think we know most of their nuclear facilities. But we're not 100% sent on everything we know. And we would have to have a very large component, much larger than we have now uh, in the area. We, we have, even during the Clinton administration, we transferred more submarines, uh, nuclear-type submarines, to the Pacific than we had in the Atlantic. So there has been a kind of gradual buildup of American military forces over decades on places like Guam and Japan, mostly uh, orientated toward what North Korea has. Uh, But so we, as I said earlier, we would win, but it would be a costly victory. And uh, so to just launch one one, uh, strike, it might send a message, but we have to be prepared for what the other side will do. Uh, And that is to say, let us say we took out an airfield or took out a missile testing site. Okay, we we could do that. And but how would, would the and North? How would the, and how would the Trump administration? How would they notify the our allies, our friends, people with an interest in? In other words, what channels would they work with the Chinese? Do you give the Chinese a heads up that this is coming? The obviously the South Koreans you talked to about, but how do how do they principally do this, or do they just launch? They would if they if they 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 would have to almost notify them because the Chinese have, as you know, historically have intervened in Korea before. They did this in the 1950s. They retrieved North Korea's fortunes. <laughs> Uh, when General MacArthur was pushing north, uh, it, it's still in late in, in late in late 1950 and early 1951, the Chinese sent in, well, estimates vary, three to five hundred thousand troops, which is a large force, and turned the tide. So they have blood in that game as well as the ideological uh, 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 comradeship with the North. So they, they, would, they would have to be notified. And the, uh, the South Koreans also would have to be notified in order to get their army on alert. Mm-hmm. And so would the Japanese and, and the Russians. Because if we start launching massive military over there, the other side, that is to say the Chinese and the Russians, might fear that this was an attack on them. We'd have to, we'd have to notify them. And I think they would all try to veto it. Everyone would say, no, we can't. The, ac- the answer that the, the, the Chinese have and the Russians have is you simply have to dialogue more. 
You simply have to talk to the North Koreans and solve this through dialogue and negotiation. Of course, that doesn't work. We know that. Uh, we've been trying that for, for decades. But notifying, it would be hard to execute in the same way uh, that we did it in Syria, which was a strike on one air base, which apparently did take out a number of uh, Syrian aircraft. But Syria is very weak compared right. to North Korea. It's a much weaker state because of the wars been raging there for the last half decade. Okay, we've established that diplomacy does not work very well with North Korea. And you've also laid out a very compelling argument that a strike against North Korea is exceedingly complicated in terms of what it could lead to. So, Tom, take us down a path of what to do. How do we turn the screws against this country if diplomacy is not working and if military options might be too hot? Again, I think all roads lead to Beijing. Uh, and I think Trump has tried that. He, he, uh, President Trump, you know, he offered better trade agreements with China mm -hmm. if it would, in fact, help us more with solving this problem. Uh, trying to get the North Vietnamese to at least declare a, a moratorium or at least to suspend some of their nuclear tests in hopes of that would de-escalate the problem. But any other scenario, a military scenario, almost ends in a, in a bad way every time. So we're left, we're going to have to go back uh, to China and hope we can de-escalate it. But I, I don't think President Trump uh, is, is uh, sending of this aircraft task group, uh, task force, is going to actually do much good unless America's really, what's the next step? If it doesn't work, then we've tried that, we shot our bolt, and we're back to uh, the, uh, the status quo ante, back to where we were before. Uh, and so I'm not optim optimistic about a, a nuclear or a, a combat role for this. I, don't, uh, I think it would be extraordinarily. The, the one hope would be that somehow the Chinese would uh, engineer some sort of change in leadership uh, in North Korea and make it a more just a plain dictatorship, one that wouldn't threaten the rest of the world so much. Uh, I mean, the United States has made offers to enter into peace treaties with North, uh, to reassure the North Koreans. The Chinese have an agreement with them. So again, it doesn't matter how many agreements they have or how assured they do. They do what they do uh, to rally support of the population around the supreme leader. Mm -hmm. And that's typical of many dictatorships to do that. But the North Koreans have carried it to such an extreme that actually they may be trapping themselves into antics that far beyond where necessary to preserve their country uh, from any kind of uh, American attack, which is not in the cards. America has, in fact, DS has pulled troops out of, out of uh, South Korea. Walk me through a more scenario, Tom, which is either we attack North Korea or within North Korea there is a frustration with, with Kim and it comes within the military and there's a coup against Kim and he's tossed. What would a post-Kim North Korea look like? Well, I think what we would want uh, and we wanted this out of Saddam Hussein, the same thing. Right. Uh, we we tried to, to toss him. Uh, Saddam, Saddam Hussein, as you know, was a dictator of Iraq, uh, overthrown by the American invasion in 2003, and eventually executed by his own countrymen. The idea before all of that happened was that we hoped there would be a coup. And the United States dabbled in attempts uh, under the Clinton administration. They never went through it. They were too afraid. They 
They, they likened it to a failure, something that happened in the Bay of Pigs fiasco in 1960 when Cuban exiles tried to invade Cuba and overthrow Castro. That didn't work either. Uh, and so there's a feeling that getting rid of uh, uh, Kim uh, Dae-jung, uh, we have to. We would like a more reasonable dictator if such if such a person could come along. No one's expecting this to turn over and be a Jeffersonian democracy. It's not going to happen, uh, short of a, a huge war and a massive occupation for years and years and years. Uh, so the idea is, it's there are there are no good scenarios, but you can see how this works, unless the Chinese can just exercise more pressure. If they will exercise pressure, say, okay, suspend the nuclear and, and missile tests. That would be a victory, I think. If they could get the, China, get the North Koreans to do that and just calm down with their testing, particularly of missiles that are capable of carrying nuclear weapons and also a nuclear test. If they do those two things, that's victory. Tom, how do you introduce Western values, Western style, Western approaches to a country like North Korea, which has no interaction with the West, in which children, which generations of people have been taught that Westerners are the devil, that everything about capitalism is evil. In other words, you look at, say, Cuba right now, which is undergoing a shift and eventually will wash away from communism and embrace democracy at some point, hopefully in our lifetimes. Uh, but they have a past with the United States, and they actually can see the light. They're only 90 miles off the coast, and they share certain things with us, baseball, uh, cigars, things like that. But North Korea has really nothing in common with the United States when you get down to it. And again, their population has been educated, most would say brainwashed, against the West. So how does the West go into North Korea, Tom, and offer sunshine and goodness and in any way expect to be received with open arms? Well, <laughs> the way you painted it, it, it it's, it's never going to happen that way. No. There are a few glimmers. Uh, first of all, there are a lot of North Koreans who have escaped under harrowing circumstances across into China. Some have made it through China back and, and gone to South Korea. They didn't want to stay in China. Uh, some have been turned back by Chinese authorities, unfortunately, and their fate is just horrible. Uh, they're either killed or, or brutalized. But there are, uh, in addition to so many of these defectors who have escaped, and some have been diplomats who've been stationed from by North Korea abroad in other countries, and they've gone. They tell us that there are some glimmers, and the glimmers are that there are lots and lots of cell phones and video devices now in North Korea that there wasn't, say, a decade ago. And the, the South Koreans do, uh, it's very dangerous for them to do this, but they do watch uh, movies from South Korea uh, and, and, and television programs. Uh, and there's more of that. So they, we, we do know that they're more aware of an outside world that's better than theirs. It sounds like the parallel would be China, where in China, satellite dishes started to appear. And suddenly, Chinese could see the world through their satellite dishes. Yeah, there's much, and actually the Chinese have tried very hard, that's a very good point, have tried very hard over the years to encourage uh, the same sort of opening up economically at first right. in North Korea, the way China, China's model was under Dao Xiaoping to open up economically, let the political party stay in power, let it control uh, censorship and politics generally, but allow an entrepreneurialism to take place. Uh, within China. And that happened over decades. And the same thing is hopeful. We hope that that would happen in, in North Korea, that companies would be more entrepreneurial. And there's 
some sign of that in the sense that they do have black markets uh, in which goods can be bought and sold. And the government from time to time will crack down on these. At other times, they'll leave them open because they provide a safety valve. And they also do, because capitalism does allow for the exchange of goods, uh, it does allow for people in, in North Korea to obtain things that they couldn't get from the government. It might just be canned food. Uh, it might be uh, diapers or candles or flashlight batteries or all kinds of just common commodities that they would not otherwise get. And these are they can get these through these black markets with money. And the government's not wild about them, but it has loosened up on some of them. So there's that, plus the penetration uh, by um, cell phones, uh, video recorders and things like that. So that I think it's not as black and white as it used to be, but the North Koreans do this. Now, that doesn't make them aspiring to, for a vault, necessarily, right. uh, but it does show that there, it's, you can only, even a, a hermetic kingdom or a, uh, a, like, a self-sealed kingdom like North Korea tries to be, even that can, can't completely keep all the light out. It's dark, but it's not completely dark as it used to be. So that's a hopeful sign. All right. Is it possible the two Koreas could one day unite? It's absolutely possible, uh, but it and, and the, it's very difficult. It will not be as easy, and it wasn't easy in the case of the two Germanys, as you know. Uh, the West Germany was about five times the population, massively much larger than East Germany, which is around 17 million people, very poor, infrastructure was old, uh, things had a kind of frumpy, Stalinist look about them. Uh, and it's been very difficult for a very dynamic economy of West Germany to integrate uh, East Germany into it. But it, it's happened largely. There's still pockets of, of poverty in East Germany and, and underdeveloped areas and gray areas and areas that don't look so robust. In the case of North and South Korea, it's quite a bit different. First of all, the population differences are dramatic compared to the Germanys. Uh, there are about 20 million people in North Korea. Uh, there are 40 million in South Korea. So it's a, just a ratio of two to one. Uh, so it's harder. The South Korean economy is very good, but it's not the German economy. Uh, and also, the degree of poverty, the degree of dilapidated infrastructure in North Korea is enormous. Some of the things they're using uh, were built by the Japanese in the colonial period before 1945. Many of their telegraphs and wires and some of their bridges were built many decades ago. And so things are not good. And it would take massive rebuilding to do that. Plus, you have had a population that has not been exposed to kind of keeping up with uh, entrepreneurship, new creative ideas, it tends to be not so much so. I mean, they do on a military sense, but that's a very restricted. It's not It's not in the commercial sense. So my first thought, Tom, was electricity. Probably we've all seen those maps of uh, satellite shots of what the Korean Peninsula looks at night, and the South Korean Peninsula is lit up, and North Korea is dark, except for Pyongyang. So you would have to just as simple provide them electricity. You would have to provide them food population is starving. You'd have to provide them better educations. You'd have to find work for them and train them. So it'd be exceedingly complicated to pull this off. Let's cut out with this. You are summoned by President Trump. Trump President Trump wants your advice on the next step to take. What is the next step to take? Well, no one in their right mind yeah. wants this situation to escalate to there is a military award. Preface this is the next step is 
where we are right now on Thursday, where there is a carrier group headed into position. Nothing hostile has happened between the two sides, so it's up to either side now to make a move. So this is your chance to tell the president what to do. I would say you you have to get the Chinese to at least a suspension, a moratorium on nuclear and missiles. It can be short. It gives that would give the Trump administration at least an excuse to pull back and not lose too much face if it pulled out. That's the best optimum I can see at the present time because anything escalates to a military confrontation, it'll it'll destroy and consume his presidency because it'll suck us into a war that'll be extremely expensive in manpower, uh, blood and treasure. So what we want to do is we want we want a Mm de-escalation. All sides have to come away as a winner. Uh, and that way, we, the United States, can withdraw the, the aircraft carrier group. We can try to get back to some normalcy uh, and sort of calm down the, the South Koreans and the Japanese who are very apprehensive, and even the Chinese government is somewhat concerned. So we need a win-win around each side. It can be small, right. but it has enough enough of a fig leaf to cover everyone. So the North Koreans feel like they've won a little bit, the Americans have won a little bit, and we can de-escalate. But we, at almost almost all costs, uh, save national honor, I think we have to uh, de-escalate uh, and, and get a, a more stable uh, and hopefully over the long run something internally will happen in, South, in North Korea, but I'll leave it. But for outsiders to think they can go in and change things immediately, for the reasons you brought up, how devastating this is going to be and how these, these people's mindset uh, is going to, to change them will take decades and a lot of money. So you've offered, you've offered a way for the president to back down from this uh, in a way that doesn't look like retreat or embarrassment. <clears throat> but what happens, Tom, as history tells us inevitably will happen when they fire a rocket or when they set off a nuke or do something provocative, then what do we do? Yeah, we're, we're back to square one or right. back to the current situation. So there are no – everyone – we've been through this before. Right. So we've had a lot of practice of North Koreans firing missiles or testing nuclear weapons. There's been a round of protests. Uh, but in a sense of by the United Nations, uh, people will pass more sanctions, uh, and then thing, life goes back to normal again. That is not the best uh, scenario in the long run because if the North Koreans do in fact get a missile that carries a nuclear weapon that is capable of hitting even the west coast of the United States, that puts them in a different league. So the only other alternative then is to really ring the place with lots of defensive missiles uh, and try to say, look, we're going to deter you. You, Yes, you might try to fire a missile, but it probably won't reach the United States. So that means more of these THADs, which stands for Terminal High uh, uh, Area uh, uh, Attack or Area uh, Defense Missiles. And they, they, we could have more of those. Uh, The Japanese are getting very good. They've got many, some of our our uh, defensive missiles, and we're going to have to do that. We're going to have to place them in places like Guam and, and also uh, perhaps uh, elsewhere. We're going to have to perhaps station ships off the coast with that can catch missiles being launched in their boost phase. Right. Uh, and if we have that, that's the best. I think we're going to have to enter a kind of uh, period with them of Cold War 
date, uh, a Cold War in which we balance them with counter-missiles and hope for a long time standoff until something gives. That's the scenario without getting into a war. So we're going to probably have to build up missile defenses at the right. at, with our allies in the region and, and push China really hard on this. And the Pentagon, meanwhile, will be coming up with a series of options for the president to weigh in terms of strikes, what to do with Kim, and so forth. Absolutely. The, the Pentagon will. The Pentagon, I'm sure they've gone through this. I, I'm sure they have plans already for this. The Pentagon has plans for nearly everything except the invasion of Afghanistan, as we all know. They were really caught flat-footed on that. But they, they do have scenarios, and they will come up with options, and those options should be looked at every few months and say if they're still relevant or not. Yeah. But I can only see a sort of a, a nuclear standoff uh, with us and M because uh, anything other than that is just, it's, it's, uh, involves us in a pyrrhic victory if we, if we do win and a costly occupation and probably would, in fact, inflict huge economic turmoil in the whole Northeast Asia region, which would rebound to our disfavor as well as the region itself. Okay. I know you don't like to make predictions, but if you and I are having this conversation on the Day of the Sun in 2018, where do you think we stand with North Korea? I kind of think it'll be somewhat similar, We've got, uh, unfortunately. I think uh, it's, it's we, as I said, we've been down this many, many times. We've had many, many times we thought we were going to war. The closest, I think, was in June of 1994, uh, when the United States actually began to move convoys of ships. Uh, Secretary Bill Perry, Secretary of Defense, was in, in the Clinton administration, and it looked very close then. We actually began to move massive amounts of troops. Some they announced, some they did not want to, uh, to escalate the situation, but they had to be prepared. And so consequently, they did this. We've done this before, uh, and yet life goes on. Uh, and so that may be the scenario again, uh, that we just have to go through these horrible uh, sort of tense crises, but at the same time, not step over the line. And I think the North Koreans realize that too. It's not in their interest right. to go to war. So it's not just us surrendering. They have to understand that if things get out of hand, and I think they understand that, they've done it before, then they will lose too, and the regime will be gone, and its leader will be killed. So a lot of noise, a lot of brinkmanship, but ultimately kind of the same old, same old. The Day of the Sun, Tom, sounds like Groundhog Day, respects. <laughs> Very familiar. Tom Anderson, thanks for coming into the studio today and having a most timely conversation about something which is going to be in the news very much. Thank like. you. Okay. You've been listening to Area 45, Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, I encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which sends you the best work of Hoover Fellows, including Tom Henriksen, straight to your inbox. You can also find the Hoover Institution online at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And our, our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care and thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.